You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, a preview of Super Bowl 54, the teams, the players, and the halftime show. Also ahead, the incredible Julie Black and her musical theater debut. We check in with the Canadian vets to the rescue in Australia. But we begin with the province's plan to make Ontario more accessible for everyone. Joining us on the feed, Lieutenant Governor David Onley in the past and in the present. He is the author and leader of the Review of the Disabilities Act of Ontario. David, thank you for joining us on the feed. Let's talk about the government's announcement and commitment to making Ontario more accessible for people with disabilities based on your recommendations. Well, thanks very much, Anne. It's a real pleasure to be uh, with you um, to speak about the announcement that was made earlier in the week uh, by the minister responsible for seniors and accessibility, uh, Raymond Cho. And um, uh, it was an announcement of what's called advancing accessibility in Ontario. And um, I think the key point of the whole thing was that it was the first time that a all of government, cross-government set of actions has been uh, announced publicly. Now, there have been overlapping initiatives by previous governments, um, and those have, you know, done the job that they needed to do. But um, as I found out from the people of Ontario, as I uh, toured the province in 2018 and into 2019, um, what people were asking for consistently was that all of the government get involved, all of the ministries accept their own degree of responsibility uh, to make Ontario more uh, inclusive and fully accessible for everyone. What I'm reading when I take a look at the announcement, uh, it's... it's uh purpose is to, it's really fourfold, but one thing that uh, comes to mind is to change the already built uh, situations and, and buildings yeah. so that they are accessible, but also to uh, encourage architects and builders of the future to keep make sure that everything they build is accessible to everyone. Yes, and it's remarkable when you think that it's not mandatory at the present time that architects actually learn about accessibility in their education. Um, and so you have had generations of designers coming out, uh, architects coming out, who had, unless they had a personal or family experience with disability, would not necessarily have any awareness nor necessarily any sense of obligation. Some, definitely, but the majority, is, if it was a thought, it was just a passing thought and uh, hence, the vast majority of our society in terms of the built environment is still quite inaccessible for the majority of people with disabilities. So to have them, uh, architects, along with the different um, building associations who are in attendance uh, at the announcement, uh, be making a commitment to work together to include courses on design um, in architectural schools uh, bodes well for the future because, like every other profession involved with baby boomers, there's a whole 
generation in the process of retiring from the profession. So it's crucial that the new generation of architects and um, building designers and uh, builders um, who come from the younger generation who are going through the educational system now, that they fully are incorporating full accessibility into the basic DNA of their design. The other point that you bring up, baby boomers, you know, they're tipping 65 and, and 70, yep. and as we continue to age, the need for uh, walkers and for wheelchairs and scooters mm-hmm. increases, thus the need for uh, fully accessible uh buildings and uh, homes and condos and places of worship. Yeah, no question at all. And, um, you know, in previous generations, uh, people either stayed in their homes and just didn't go out uh, or had to get, uh, you know, trucked on off to some senior's residence. And if you need to be in one, that's tremendous if, you know, you can get that kind of service. But if you don't need to be in a senior's place, if you can stay in your own home because it was originally designed to be fully accessible, um, because the community is fully accessible and therefore you can shop and uh, participate in community activities, then everything is for the better. Absolutely. Has there been a sense of ambivalence uh, that you've noted from uh, all levels of government up until this point, up until the review and your recommendations? And are you sensing a greater, stronger commitment from all levels of government and from the public? Well, there's no question about that. And the answer is yes, because at the same time that the review that I completed, the third legislative review uh, came out, uh, the federal government passed the Accessible Canada Act, and we've seen other jurisdictions, municipal jurisdictions, take their own initiatives. And so I think politicians of all stripes, uh, regardless of uh, party affiliation, uh, are realizing the fundamental realities, and that is it's a generation of voters who are getting older and voters who are in demand, uh, demanding that there be more accessible facilities. And uh it's their obligation, and I think that the penny is finally dropping, if you will. Maybe I should say the nickel. <laughs> we don't do pennies anymore, mm-hmm. but the nickel is finally dropping in the minds of the different politicians that um, we simply have to have a more fully accessible society. And there's a, fun, a financial bottom line to it, too, and it relates to job opportunities for people with disabilities who have much, much higher uh, unemployment than the average person, and that is that um, if the if individuals with disabilities are not employed, then they're on government assistance. Um, and, you know, we as a society have long ago agreed that we would provide, however marginally, we would at least provide assistance for such people so that they uh, could keep body and soul together. So we understand that. But when you're talking pushing 20% of the population with a disability and the huge proportion of them uh, are individuals without work, without employment, um, you have a conundrum. Um, taxpayer dollars are going out to keep them alive. Well, if they became employed, then they would become taxpayers. Yeah. And instead of having to pay for services to meet their needs, they themselves would be able to meet them out of their own pockets uh, and therefore reduce potentially the amount of money that government has to spend, while at the same time, absolutely guaranteed, more money would come into government because these people would become 
taxpayers instead of tax users. Makes sense. Makes dollars and cents. So uh, your many years as Lieutenant Governor of Ontario uh, and then your mm-hmm. time as uh, the leader, the author uh, of the review, you traveled uh, Ontario, David Onley, uh, and mm-hmm. wearing many different hats. So what did you learn about Ontarians, but what did you learn about yourself through this process, and in particular, the review? Well, I think one of the things I learned about myself was how much more I needed to learn uh, from the people of Ontario. I mean, it kind of sounds trite when you hear, you know, various politicians or authors going on tours and saying, you know, I learned more from that tour than, than, you know, what I was able to share with people. And I, I got a real sense of that because I heard the individual stories, and some of them were heartbreaking. Uh, some of them were just uh, completely crushing in terms of the uh, burdens that these people were experiencing, which is why I put in my report that for a huge proportion of people in the province of Ontario, with disabilities, it is a soul-crushing experience. Yeah. And it's very true. Uh, I've heard these stories. And so I, I learned how much more I needed to learn, and uh, still am. And uh, so it was a phenomenal experience. I know it's taken a full year for the provincial government to really speak authoritatively about uh, the recommendations I made. Um, at the same time, I know that this is just the beginning uh, and that there are going to be a series of announcements over the next number of months uh, related to additional efforts with accessibility in relation to the review. And so um, I'm cautiously optimistic <laughs> that, in fact, uh, uh, things are going to start changing. You know, the objective was to make Ontario fully accessible by the year 2025. That was the original intent of the AODA back in 2005. And I was appointed first chair of the Minister's Re- uh, Advisory Committee back in 2005 on the implementation of the Act. And I remember thinking at the time, well, we really don't need 20 years. This could really be done in about seven, mm. and it probably could have. Um, but now we, here we are at 2020, which puts us five years away, and I, I think the, the realism is this, that we will have things significantly improved by 2025, certainly in contrast to 2005. But this is a generational process. And it's just going to be a, con- a, a continuum so that just as, you know, just earlier this week we had the, you know, the mental health aware- awareness with the Let's Talk Day. Um, have things improved over the last number of years because of that? Yes, um, much better. Are things perfect? No, not at all. Uh, and so I think we will have the same realization when we hit 2025. We'll be able to look back with real sense of pride and accomplishment and also realize that we still have a ways to go, that it's just an ongoing process. Cautiously optimistic. I must say, you were an outstanding lieutenant governor, and you did an amazing job uh, heading up the review. Uh, David Onley, we now must ask, uh, and because we all care so much about you, all of Ontario loves you, uh, how are you feeling? You had emergency brain surgery not long ago, and uh, tell us how you're feeling today. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, just three months and, and barely on, on this, uh, this coming Monday will be three months and one week since the emergency surgery. And I can simply say that uh, I'm just amazed at the proficiency of the uh, officials and the doctors at Sunnybrook Hospital, first in the detection of the tumor, and then secondly, its removal uh, less than 18 hours later. 
which completely changed the entire outlook for me. I mean, I'd not known that that was the case. Um, gratefully, it was benign, uh, but even with it being benign, it's still a three- to six-month recovery process, and I'm just uh, deeply gratified that uh, through the, the hard work of the individuals down there and, uh, uh, and other healthcare professionals that I'm ahead of schedule. I still have uh, quite a way to go, but um, you know, I'm, I, I know that I'm, I've had no setbacks and no reversals and uh, just been tremendously grateful. Well on the road at this point to recovery. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, I'm proud to know that you have donated a part of your brain to science. I know that that's something that we, we giggle about, but it's very important, and I'm so glad that you are, are strong and getting stronger, and thank you so much for the work you have done in helping the Advancing Accessibility in Ontario announcement that came earlier this week. Thank you, David Onley. Thank you, Anne. Take care. And you as well. Our next stop takes us to Australia, where wildlife experts have rushed in to help animals from the devastating bushfires. And joining us now on the feed, award-winning vet doctor Scott Bainbridge, at Dundas West Animal Hospital, recently returned from Australia. We say, Scott, Canadian vets to the rescue. So what made you decide that you had to be in Australia to help out? Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great question. I actually happen to be down there for, for a totally different reason. My wife and I run a, uh, a, a vet camp for kids that want to be veterinarians. We've done it for the last eight years. And so uh, one of my partners down there actually was asked to come and help with the, the, the wildlife, the injured wildlife. And so she, uh, she asked me to tag along on the trip, and I was, I was more than happy to do so. What did you see when you got there? You know, it was it was pretty overwhelming as we as we drove closer and closer to the area where the fires were. It just became just so drastic all of a sudden when you're in the fire areas. Everything went from green and lush to just absolutely black. I mean, it was almost post-apocalyptic. It was it was it was like nothing I've ever seen before in my life. So it was uh, it was a little bittersweet because as we actually pulled up to the area where we were doing the um, the um, the kind of makeshift mash hospital that was set up for us, the people were so thrilled to see us because they've been waiting weeks for us to get down there because it was just so unsafe for the vets to get into the area. We had a couple times planned to go and then had to cancel and then rebook, and then when we finally got in there, they were just thrilled to see us. So. How did you and the other vets manage to corral the animals? To talk to me about that. You know, they were in the middle of yeah. this devastation of the bushfires. So, so how did that process take place? So, so again, another good question. So there's a whole team of volunteers down there. So we've, we've, we had a field team, and so the field team were not veterinarians. They were, they were locals that were out in the area, and they were actually darting some of the, the adult uh, uh, kangaroos. Uh, and then once they were sedated, they were checking their wounds, and if they thought that they were something that we could help with, those animals are then brought to our triage station, which was set up on a farm. So, so we were just kind of, kind of like receive the incoming. I guess kind of thing and in, in the end unfortunately a lot of the adult roos were so badly burned and so injured that they were they were euthanized humanely um, if the 
course, that did happen. They had to check their pouches, and often there's joeys in there, so the joeys would be viable, and they'd be brought back to us. Some of the joeys did have burned feet because they'd obviously tried to jump out at one point, and uh, so we then were in charge of making sure we had pain control on board, um, duly doing uh, bandage changes every two days. We were bottle feeding them. It was it was it was pretty full on for sure. I know, and I've known you for decades. That you are. Uh passionate about animals, about domestic and wildlife animals. How how difficult was this for you and for the other yeah. Canadian vets? It was it was hard. There, there was actually there was um, uh, myself, one of my uh, one of my classmates just happened to be down there on holiday. So he, like I said, he was with me. We had a, uh, an Irish vet down there. We had two Australian vets, and we all kind of felt the same way. We knew we knew obviously we were we were helping with the suffering because the animals that were so badly injured, it was just horrific for them to kind of have to go on this way. So so I mean, I kind of got a bit of peace out of the fact that we were helping with that. Then of course the ones that we could rehabilitate, that that was very rewarding so i mean so it was like i said it, it was bittersweet for sure and it, it was just well our little area that we were working in i'm sure is just a drop in the bucket of, of, of what's going on but um but it was it was quite rewarding was this all on a volunteer basis and that would include the supplies as well and the makeshift mash um hospital you got it yeah, yeah this was someone's farm that just you know the the, the Said okay, they were animal lovers, and they're like, okay, we're we're going to do our bit to help out. And so they had set up on their on their farm, and these some of these people have lost everything down there. So the fact that they're even you know have their their heads in the right place that they can do this kind of stuff. Everyone else was on a volunteer basis. To me, the, the vets I was working with, the local vets there, just walked away from their practices and kind of closed the door and said, okay, we 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 have to do this. Like the the, the animals really need us. And what's the situation like now? Yeah, so now is probably the bigger concern. So the, the, the animals that, you know, were able to escape the fires, these are, these are very territorial animals. So now they're coming back to the area, and the problem is, and, like, it, the, the place looks like the moon. There's not, there is not a piece of vegetation. There's not a leaf in sight. So there's no food for these animals, and they're coming back now trying to find food, and there's nothing for them. And what we're starting to see now is more animals dying off as a result of starvation. And I, I, they say over a billion animals died from the fires, but I can only imagine what's going to happen going beyond that. Did you say a billion? A billion, yeah, a billion animals, and that's not including insects, believe it or not. I'm I'm speechless. That is just yeah. you know, and and we look at what's going on around the world. There there's devastation everywhere. How do how do we put into perspective? You know, we're talking about animals at this point, and so many of us have great uh, respect for animals, but they're also an important part of the ecosystem. So this oh, kind sure. of loss is just it's just unfathomable. I know, and you know, here's one, one thing I, I noticed that a, a lot of people were kind of being unfair to Australia in a way, saying, well, you know, this is Australia's problem. They, 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 they shouldn't allow this to happen to their animals. And I'm like, these animals just happen to be in Australia. I mean, they are, they are the, they are the planet's animals, you know, and I think we should all, every country is responsible for what's going on down there. And, uh, to me, we should all be helping out with this situation because, yeah, it's devastating. And then almost, they think the, the koala population, they lost one third of all their koalas from these fires. And that species was already endangered. And so I, I can only imagine that in 20 years, we may not have koalas anymore. So is there hope for their future? And what needs to be done by Australia and by the rest of us, other nations well, that care? For me, personally, I mean, so for right now, I think 
donating to, to, to wildlife in Australia is, is super, super important. And hopefully, the one thing I noticed is they didn't seem to have a lot of infrastructure in place for us, for the vets. Like, it would be nice to see, I mean, bushfires are not new to Australia. It's been a very, very severe year for them by any means, but it would be nice for them to be a little more prepared for maybe mobile veterinary units that could be set up and ready to be dispersed immediately in these cases so that we have triage centers that could be set up and look after the wildlife uh, in a much more efficient manner than happened this time. I've looked at some of your pictures, and we're going to post some of those photos on our Twitter feed at 105.9 The Region. One stood out for me, and it was you with a baby bottle nursing, feeding a, a little kangaroo. You know, you looked into that kangaroo's eyes. What did you see? So, oh, it, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, it brought me right back to having having my, my son's now 16 years old, but it just it it made me feel very very fatherly. Like it was uh, it was it, it amazed me how such a young animal would just bond to you almost immediately, and how well they took the bottle. And it was yeah, it it, it melted my heart. It really did. Um, as a little bit of an anecdote, so a couple days later after I was done this, I I got a little bit itchy in, and I was like, oh. Kind of weird, and I, I looked at my my chest, and I had picked up kangaroo lice in my oh. chest. Hair, believe it or not, <laughs> so I ended up having to shave my chest after the event. So, uh, so lesson learned: uh, just be uh, be a little careful when you're you're holding these baby goeys that you don't pick up out of things. So. Oh, but, uh, it, one of the risks of torn. the job. <laughs> you, sure, you got it. I'm, I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure that was a moment where you thought, oh well, you know, because you're doing such great work, it's fantastic. Uh, and are there still a rotation of vets from? around the world uh, coming in to, uh, to help and then, you know, moving out so that they can restore themselves, yeah. I guess. So what's happening right now is a um, there's, there's an organization in out of Australia actually called Vets Beyond Borders, and they actually have set up a system they're calling it Alert, and it's for any vet in Australia or worldwide that is willing to donate their time to this cause, and they've uh, they're maintaining a database so veterinarians can go in or veterinary nurses can go in and you can apply to be registered, and then they then share that list with some of these wildlife groups and make sure that the uh, the groups now can contact these vets and get people brought over. I, I heard a rumor, I don't know if it's true, that Qantas was actually helping to pay for airfares for some of the vets to come into the country as well, Fantastic. which would be great. So. I had re- uh, read recently that Canadian crafters have been making uh, joey pouches, and uh, they've been uh, making them en masse, and uh, one of our major airlines here in Canada has agreed to ship them over. I mean, these are great big cargo planes. I wonder how helpful that is. Uh, you know, I, I guess a baby, when mom dies uh, because of the these bushfires needs to have that same sort of swaddling oh. feeling that they would have in their marsupial mother. I can tell you firsthand. So the the in our triage center, we had like kind of these wooden kind of easels set up, and we were hanging these pouches from the easels, and the the little joeys would bounce around and bounce back into their little man-made pouch and, and spend a couple hours in there. Then they'd hop back out again and get something to eat and go back in. They are they are so comfortable in the pouch. Whenever we did any kind of work, whether we're changing the bandages, we'd come up and hold the pouch in front of them, and they would just hop right into our pouch, and it made it so much easier for us to do our work. And where do they go once they have been, uh, you know, their, their health has been deemed uh, acceptable for them to, you know, head back out into the wild? As you mentioned, yeah. it looks more like well, the moon. 
You got it. So once they're old enough and they can manage on their own, they will be relocated to an area, obviously, where there is vegetation, so that they can they can they can move on. It, it'll be quite shocking how quickly you know the, the the bush does bounce back in Australia. Like already, you can you can start to see signs after a month of where a fire has been. You're seeing a little bit of green sprouting out. So I mean, you know, nature's pretty 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 vulnerable, and at the same time, it can bounce back pretty quick too. So. Pretty moving stuff from you, as always, Scott. Uh, where can people go if they want to find out more or make a donation in order to continue these efforts made by vets from around the world, and in particular from Canada? Yeah, for, for sure for me. So probably your, your best bet right now is, is uh, it's called the New South Wales Wildlife Council, and this is a... Uh, volunteer organization, so no, no, none of the money that's donated goes to any kind of administrative fees or paying anybody. The, the money is shuffled straight down through the through, through the proper channels. Um, this council actually supports 25 different wildlife caregivers that are on the front lines right now. They are doing the work on the people we're working with, and those are the ones who need the cash up front because those are the ones that are just their resources are being depleted right now. So again, the New South Wales Wildlife Council. Okay, and I would think that if you just put a dot com in front of that or at the end of that that you've got their website you got it and actually they have a gofundme um project on right now so if you actually go to the gofundme.com website and punch in search there the new south wales wildlife council you'll you'll get their gofundme uh, page and you can actually donate right to that so i know they're trying to raise seventy thousand dollars right now which is trust me a drop in the bucket from what they need and they they, they, they probably need you know seven million dollars according to me but i mean any any anything that anyone could donate is definitely going to help thank you for encouraging all of us to take this matter very seriously and to think about donating and thank you for the incredible work that you've always done and that you will continue to do dr scott bainbridge dundas west animal hospital just back from australia helping out the wildlife that is suffering so much from these bushfires thank you scott oh thanks for having me in I'm Ann Romer. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including how you can help Project 99A. Afuaba with that story. Joining me to chat is Josephine Vaccaro-Chang. She's the founder and chief literacy ambassador for Project 99A. Josephine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It is our pleasure. We always love to highlight uh, lovely organizations that are right here in the region that residents can know about. But before we get into Project 99A, just tell me a bit about yourself and how exactly this organization started. Sure. I'd love to. Um, I'm a children's author and illustrator, and I deliver interactive workshops to primary age students based on books that I've written and illustrated. So I visit with um, students from kindergarten to grade three within the school system as well as in public libraries. The first book that I wrote is called We Are Colorful Friends, and it's about a group of different colored animals who like different activities and realize they can still play together. I co-authored my second book with my son, Rowan, and the book is called Our Colorful Cookies. So we recycled the characters from We Are Colorful Friends, and it was inspired by the classic story of the Little Red Hen. You definitely have a talent there. Um, talk to me then about how you used those talents and um, fueled that into creating Project 99A. Sure. So as a teacher and a parent, I strongly believe that 
the ability to read really helps people reach their full potential. So it doesn't really matter what field a person goes into. Mastering this one skill can mean the difference between being successful and failing. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, I'm an artist, and I participated in the Richmond Hill Art and Studio Tour back in the fall of 2018, and I met a woman by the name of Kamala Jean Gopi, and I was really impressed with her, especially after she told me that she had built a school in Malawi. So I offered to give her some of my books, and before I sent the books, I Googled Kamala Jean's name. Not only had she built the school, she also hired a teacher, two assistants, arranged for the students to receive a meal every day. Then she taught the women in the village how to sew, bought six sewing machines, and then built an extension onto the school. And she did that all within a one-year period. And I was really inspired by her. And I thought, wow, that's great. I want to do something great, too. And when I thought of the word great, I immediately thought of the greatest hockey player ever, Wayne Gretzky. And hockey fans will remember that he wore the number 99. So I decided to give Kamala Jean 99 books for the school, and that's how Project 99A was started. I added an A to the end of the name because we're Canadian, eh? <laughs> Clever. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I like it. Um, and so then, why then are you trying to collect books in particular? I know that the organization, of course, there's more things that uh, you're fundraising for, but there is there was at one point a call for books specifically. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're really fortunate to live in Canada, and we're blessed in so many ways. And my family and I have books in every room of our house, including our powder room. We have a huge uh, Uncle John's bathroom reader collection in our powder room. So um, there's a lot of books that we own that we don't read anymore, and they're just cluttering up our house. And I thought it would be great to share them with people that need them. So we are um, sharing our books with people that are in York Region and internationally as well. So my family and I live here in Richmond Hill, and recently we've donated books to Crosby Heights Public School. They have a large population of refugees. Uh, we've donated books to the Richmond Hill Food Bank, Music for Young Children, The Rose of Sharon, those are all here in York Region. And then internationally, we've donated books to Malawi, as I mentioned before, and then the British Virgin Islands, Trinidad and Tobago, Cambodia, and Florida. I know that you have sort of collected and you've donated back. Um, have you received any book donations from residents in the region that you could uh, donate to, to the international countries? We have. We've had a series of book drives um, I think it's been about six or seven since we started. My family, my friends, our neighbors have been very generous. So when we started, our goal was to collect and distribute 9,999 books in our first year to tie it in with our name. Mm -hmm. um, and we're already over 13,000 books. In fact, we're at capacity in my garage, and then I had to find a second location to store books. 
Wow. So first off, congratulations for exceeding, Thank of course, you. that goal and getting all of those books. Um, so we know that they're going to be going to great use in terms of the number of uh, people that are going to be reading them. But then if you could just talk to me a little bit about, of course, it's not necessarily just collecting the books. There are other costs that go into this with regards to maybe even shipping the books. If you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. We formed a relationship with Sunwing Airlines and through their foundation, they've offered to fly our books to any of their destinations, which was really generous of them. One of the places that I want to ship books is to the British Virgin Islands, and unfortunately, Sunwing Airlines doesn't fly there. So we are incurring shipping expenses to get the books to the British Virgin Islands. You might remember that the island was hit by two Category 5 hurricanes Mm -hmm. around September of 2018, and it devastated the country. So there was a lot of structural damage, and sadly, many of the country's books got wet. So their public libraries, um, their bookshelves are virtually empty at this point. So we started a GoFundMe campaign Um, And people have been very generous in terms of donating to the GoFundMe campaign, but we haven't raised enough money to ship these books. We already have processed in excess of 5,000 books that we're ready to ship, but we just can't afford to ship them. How has the reception been like for those who've received the books? Have you heard from any of the kids overseas or even locally uh, when they received the books? I spoke with Marjane F. Sally from the York Region District School Board, and she said when the children received the books um, at their holiday party, they were really, really excited. Unfortunately, I couldn't attend that event because I had a class that night, but um, the kids were very excited, and the parents were really grateful to be able to take home those books. We've already shipped 40 cubic feet of books to the British Virgin Islands, which they received in the fall, and they were thrilled to receive the book. So everybody's been very grateful and appreciative, and a lot of people here in Richmond Hill and within York Region, as I mentioned before, we have so much that when we share these things that we're not using and they're going to a good cause, people are more than happy to donate them to us because they know they're going to go somewhere where they're really needed. Where can residents then go for more information if they want to volunteer, if they want to donate books? Incidentally, I should mention that we also collect adult books Mm -hmm. and we collect textbooks as well as full sets of encyclopedias. We think it's really important for adults to model good behavior. So it's difficult for them to tell their their children to go and read a book if they don't have one in their hands. So we also distribute adult books in case anybody wants to donate those. Um, They can visit our website at project99a.ca, and they're also welcome to call me directly anytime. This is my phone number. It's 905-787-9656, and my email address is info at project99a.ca. Perfect. Josephine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about this great initiative. Congratulations once again. Let's just keep the, the love moving in terms of getting books to into the hands of children and, you know what, opening up their imagination one page at a time. Thank you so much, Josephine. Thank you. Afwal, I'd like to thank you so much for taking an interest in Project 99A and helping us elevate global literacy rates here at home and throughout the world.
I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com. On the feed, Canadian R&B icon, the songstress of our nation, Julie Black, joins us with more on a very exciting project, uh, perhaps a way of stepping outside of your comfort zone, Julie. You're starring in Caroline or Change. What drew you to this project? Well, uh, Caroline being a domestic maid of her time in the 60s, it reminded me of my mom and my aunties in Jamaica who at that time was, you know, quite a quite a prestigious job for them to save their money and be able to come to Canada, um, knowing that there are many women on today that are still raising their children um, as a domestic. And I think that it's important for us to understand and know what their how they felt, like what were their thoughts and feelings more so than their, what they do. You know, musical theater, it's a very different venue. It must have been quite a procedure, quite a thought process for you to go through in order to come to the conclusion that, yes, you wanted to do this. Were you sure that you could do this? I wasn't sure at all. In fact, I, was, I, I didn't think I could do it. And I'm one that typically is pretty positive. Um, I had challenges vocally. And so and I also recognized that the scores, the score is mostly written in a soprano, you know, as a soprano. And so and I'm an alto. So I knew I had to train. And so as long as the musical stage would allow me, even outside of contract, to like provide me with the, uh, the musical director to work with me for one full year, 365, like I worked one year for this role oh. fully. There is a quote from artistic director Mitchell Marcus. He says, she has a curiosity and a hunger to break outside of the box of what she's known for in a way that I don't encounter very often. This is an artist that is ready to take this on and wants to put in the work. That's you, Julie. Yes. Oh, I love Mitchell so much. He's, you know, those people like we, we, you might have like a, a high school teacher and an elementary school teacher. There's certain people in your life that are, that are pivotal to, you know, your, your growth. And Mitchell's one of them. Robert, Robert McQueen's another one that's our director and our music director, Reza Jacobs. It's like, where, where have you been my whole life? But, you know, they say when the student's ready, the teacher arrives. And so I'm so grateful. So set the stage for us. If you can describe uh, as best you can uh, what what this production is like, the layers within it. Ooh, honey, oh, we got enough time. Well, let's try. <laughs> Many layers. Um, I, I love that. Number one, it's a there's there's no ageism. So the youngest is like eight, the oldest is like sixty. Complete diverse cast, and I love that. You know, Caroline as a black maid in the sixties. We get to see what her day-to-day life looked like um, from the inside out, from her spirit, her mind, her soul, as well as some of the resentments of not being able to do for her kids what she does for the, the child Noah, who she's helping to raise, uh, from this Jewish family that, that's employed her. We also see some of the, some of the, um, you know, the complications of, like, you know, being a stepmother. You know, there's Rose who marries into the family where, you know, it's like here's this woman that this little boy Noah is not, doesn't want to, to love. Like a lot of kids could relate to that, having a step-parent, et cetera. The music is through the roof. Um, the vocals out of this world. So you're going to uh, just bring Kleenex. Let's put it that way. You're going to laugh until you cry, and you're going to cry until you cry. So it's a beautiful piece, and, that, and I think it's going to be a conversation starter, as well as it's going to build a bridge for us. I often say that in Canada we build bridges, not walls. 
And this is a bridge for us right now. The production is called Caroline or Change. Have you changed as a result of this? Well, yes, and I, I often I, I don't use the word change anymore. I use a, I use the word transform. And so, because I believe that when you, for me, fundamentally, when I've tried to change, even if it's like change my diet, it doesn't stick. And so, it's you know, I think through, true permanent change comes through transformation. And I've been transformed on a, on a molecular level. There's a there's parts of me of my femininity of my my I'm, I'm a lot just softer, and I think it's okay. I think more women need to understand that it's it's okay to be feminine and soft, and still, you know, meekness isn't weakness. You know, so there's a lot that I'm learning. Let's talk about the basics. You know, it's like running a marathon to involve yourself in a daily, nightly, matinee, musical production. Where do you get the stamina? And are you almost training like an athlete? Oh, I've always considered myself a vocal athlete. Day one, since I was 14 years old, when I first got my record deal in New York, I signed to Sony, and I, I went to etiquette school. And I was, I'm a, I'm a different generation. I'm, I, I wasn't, I didn't come up in the Motown era, but I studied the Motown era, and that was, you did have to be an athlete, Tina Turner athlete, you know. And so, you know, nutrition very, very important. Sleep, you know, my tribe, you know, I think that food is more than what you put in your mouth; it's what you put in your mind; it's what you see. And so, you know, if you check even my social media, I'm very intentional with what I post. I'm intentional with who I follow. And um, I love it. The greats put in the work. Caroline or Change opening uh, just in time to also celebrate the start of Black History Month. It all comes together at once. So is that significant for you? It's very significant. I think it couldn't have been timed, even, you know, any better. I want everyone to, to really, um, everyone, all walks of life to realize that black history is our history. We are here as allies. We share this space in this amazing planet. And so I think it's nice that, um, that we have this opportunity to come together and through Carolina or change and celebrate something that is, that's unique and that is inclusive. Are you nervous about all that you have done? It's open and it's successful and you've got to run until uh, the 15th of February. Are you still nervous? Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> I get anxious. I think that's what keeps me grounded. I get a little butterfly. I'm like, okay, yep, still doing it for the right reasons. Still have the right intentions. I think that uh, if, you're, if you're not in tune with like, that responsibility of being present, I think anxiousness and nerves means that you're, you're, you're there. Yeah. You're, you're present. I yeah. agree. I agree. Just before we go, and just before we began this interview, I heard you doing some vocal warm-ups, and I said, yeah. I understand those. Can we do that together? Can you uh, guide me through a, yeah. a little vocal? Okay, I'm ready. Teacher Julie. So we're going to go... We're gonna go with our tongue. We're gonna go. Yeah, we're gonna go. Perfect. There we go. Not only are you a magnificent human being, so talented, so beautiful, so gracious, you are a good sport as well. Julie Black, thank you for joining us on the feed. Caroline or change. Now, if people want ticket information or just to know anything more about you. Where should they go? Yes, yeah, so ticket information, carolinetoronto.com. I want to offer you all the Julie Black code. It is Julie, J-U-L-L-Y, and the number 20. Gets you 20% off any ticket in the house.
Beautiful. Julie 20, okay? And I'm on social media, Julie Black, J-U-L-O-Y, B-L-A-C-K. You can find me. <gasps> Julie Black, thank you. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. So even if you're not a football fan, you know this is Super Bowl weekend. Jim Lang is next with the pregame. Well, it's a big game. Super Bowl 54 in Miami. Palm trees, beaches, sunny skies, and two great teams. Two of the best teams in the league all year. The San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. To talk more about it, the proud of York Region, the singer NFL writer for Post Media and the Toronto Sun, John Crick. John, how are you? Uh-huh. How can I be better? I mean, what you just said, palm trees, heat, Miami, it's okay. January, I'm not complaining. No, no, and and as a football fan, we have nothing to complain because as a matchup, I, I'm thrilled at the two teams, their differing styles, and just the, the complete opposite coaches, the young and up-and-coming Kyle Shanahan, to the veteran Warhorse and Andy Reid. Yeah, it's a, there's wonderful contrasts such as that. There's the like the new wave of quarterback. This is the first time since early last decade when for the representing the AFC at quarterback, we haven't had either Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, or Tom Brady. That's been it. Wow. I mean, I think that there's one. There's the one. There was the one exception, I believe, was um, Joe Flacco, and he was he had what is arguably statistically the greatest playoff by any quarterback in the history of the NFL. I mean, he was. Whatever it was, he didn't throw an interception, and he had some odd, something more than 10 touchdowns. It was just fantastic, that playoff year. That's what it took. It took like an old-time playoff year to get one of those guys out of there. So it's nice to see the new wave of guys coming in on both sides of the conference. And, and when you talk about the new wave, I, I don't remember the last time I've seen a quarterback who had the complete total package like a Patrick Mahomes. He can run like a Randall Cunningham, but I've seen him make throws off his back foot 20, 30 yards to Travis Kelsey, like a rope, John. I mean, his arm is phenomenal. It is. It really is. I had a preseason feature that, um, well, I was just got off the phone with uh, Dan Marino to do an interview about all this stuff. And uh, I, he'd mentioned to me that, you know, he'd played shortstop. And I said, well, I did this big feature back in August that an inc- incredible amount of players um, of the last 50, 60 years, about 80%, 90% of the top quarterbacks that you can just r- rattle off off the top of your head um, they played shortstop, huh. uh, and not just baseball in high school. They played shortstop, and the whole thing that got me going on that line of thinking is what you just said, Jim, which is the incredible amount of throws that he made. Sometimes it looks like he's turning two on a double play, <laughs> and that turns out um, I got to – I was one of the only visiting journalists on the opening day of Chiefs camp this year, as it happens, by strange coincidence, and I got a few minutes to talk to Patrick about that, and he said that's exactly what he is doing and thinking – and he said it is baseball that has that trained him to throw at different arm angles and to be able to even contemplate and creatively think to make those throws. Baseball, he said, really helped him. Uh, he's a pitcher, too, and, of course, that helps with arm strength. Uh, so that was really what sparked that feature. And then the next, literally the next day, I was in Green Bay and uh, got a chance to talk to Aaron Rodgers about that at their opening day of training camp. And he said, you know, I'd never thought of that. And he said, but that's exactly right, because I hadn't read this anywhere, but he played a lot of shortstop, too. And he said that's the same thing. He said it teaches you arm angles to throw at different arm angles, because sometimes, he said, you're in the pocket, and you just can't move your feet and your whole body positioning. Think of Tom Brady. Every time he throws, he wasn't a shortstop. He was a catcher. He said every time you see Tom Brady throw, 
he aligns his feet in the direction that he's throwing. So you see him do it really quickly. If it's to throw to the left, he quickly moves his feet to the left and perfectly throws the same way every time. Whereas these guys who played shortstop, including Dan Marino, I just got the phone with, he, he said the exact same thing. You sometimes have to be facing kind of left and throwing toward the right. Matthew Stafford of Detroit was a great example. He was a, and he was a, a shortstop as well as a catcher. And he said the same thing, that playing shortstop is really what allows a quarterback to make all these what they call off-platform throws. And the best one I have ever seen, and including some of these old-timers I've ever seen, is, as you say, Patrick Mullen. Speaking with John Crick, singer, NFL writer for the Toronto Sun of Post Media in Miami for Super Bowl 54. Um, it, it's going to be an incredible game. There's the pomp and the circumstance, but then there's the coaching matchup. Kyle Shanahan has really, really impressed me all season long. Uh, Nick Bosa, Richard Sherman, the 49ers defense is solid. But I've seen Patrick Mahomes make a lot of good defenses look pretty humble. How did they contain him? It's really, for me, that is a really intriguing part of this whole matchup. And that is, what exactly, how well is this really good 49ers defense going to be able to corral Patrick Mahomes? I mean, Mahomes hasn't been... uh, crazy prolific like the last two playoff games all through the season. In fact, his numbers were um, down in some substantially in some categories. Yes, he got hurt. Yes, he's playing on a dislocated kneecap that he suffered earlier in the season, which I'm told by these uh, medical experts tore probably a ligament underneath the kneecap that keeps it in place, and he's just been playing on it through the pain and the discomfort and whatever other limitations. So, yeah, he is something else. But this defense, I am telling you, this 49ers defense, there are experts who are saying that they've never seen a front four defensive line be that fast and aggressive uh, as they can field with four or five or six guys in rotation, these Niners. And apparently, from what I'm reading and hearing and interviewing with some of these guys last night at media night, including their, their great defensive coach, Robert Saleh, and that is that they have a guy named D Ford that they got in a trade from what team in the offseason? Kansas City, uh, a pass rusher, that when they move him inside and put him against a guard, usually the guard is going against the big guys, like the 330-pound uh, run plug guys. And they're not used to the speed with which some of these defensive linemen that the, the 49ers could throw at them from the inside. And what that does is it kind of collapses the inside of the interior of their line on the pass rush to protect the quarterback, such as the Chiefs with Mahomes, and then it opens up the outside. So it's like you've only got five guys across that line, and the Niners tax you with their pass rush better than any other team. And what that also allows, Jim, is if you're only rushing four, you can drop seven, all seven into the pass rush. If you look at Baltimore this year, they blitzed 55% of the time more than any other team, and they got a lot of pass pressure, but with five and six guys. And that meant that they're only dropping six or you know, six or five guys in coverage. Well, what the, the Niners do is they, they rush four, usually only four, get pressure, and have seven guys back in coverage. That's a huge difference. John, Andy Reid has been in the National Football League for a long time as an assistant, as a head coach. He's well-respected. Uh, he's got an amazing resume, but it's missing one thing, and that's coaching a team to a Super Bowl victory. He's got Patrick Mahomes. He's got the best team speed, I think, in the NFL. He's got a solid defense, especially with the Honey Badger. Can this be the year that Andy Reid gets it all done and is a Super Bowl champion? Well, they are favored by a point, right? I mean, I think that the Niners should be favored myself, just on their what they did in their record of their season. But Andy Reid, 21 years in the league, as most people know, most with 
the Philadelphia Eagles. And the one time they made it to the Super Bowl was in that first Brady Belichick Patriot dynasty, right? From 01 to 04. And, uh, they lost a, a close one there. But this would be wonderful because Andy Reid uh, does still, I don't think he still gets the accolades he deserves. I think he's like fifth now, all time wins in the NFL for coaches. And he, has been as, you know, we talk about all these quarter, these college gurus, right, on offense, like the guy who just came to Arizona, Cliff Kingsbury, all these guys with all these cool college offenses and things. Well, Andy Reid has been only in the NFL for the last two, three decades, and he is as innovative with what he does on offense as anybody at any level of football. And I don't think he still gets the uh, appreciation and the accolades he deserves for just being so creative. What they do with that team speed, as you say, you know, some of them call them the, the short Smurfy receivers that are so hard to cover because they have so much speed. Well, they do. You know, they got Tyreek Hill, and then they went and drafted the closest thing to Tyreek Hill this past April in the draft and Nicole Hardman, both of whom in this game you might even see returning kicks. You might even see Hill returning kicks. So he usually doesn't do that because you don't want to get him hurt. Well, hell, you're in the Super Bowl. All those stops go out the window now, right? So we are going to see speed at different positions, well, such as the defensive line of the Niners and as the, these receivers for the Chiefs, like maybe we've never seen in any kind of an NFL game. It's really intriguing for that reason. Uh, last time I was in a Super Bowl in Miami, it was the Colts uh, losing to the Saints in a wild game at the end. Um, uh, I, as, as much as I think it's going to be a tight game, I'm still leaning towards the Chiefs. Who do you think is going to win? I think I might actually pick the Niners, and here's why. It's not that I don't think the Chiefs can score points. I do. But the Packers can score points, and they couldn't. Most teams that play them this year that are really good offenses haven't been able to. And the one time, really, when the Chief, when this 49ers defense just was getting beaten up, by a good passer. That was by Drew Brees. And it was in the middle of, I call, the hardest three-game stretch in the season for any team. And that was when San Francisco played Green Bay at Baltimore at New Orleans. Well, they smoked Green Bay. They nearly won, um, beat the Ravens in Baltimore. They lost on the last second field goal. And they outscored the Saints and Drew Brees in New Orleans. I think it was 48-45 to yeah. when Jimmy Garoppolo through for 400 yards and four touchdowns. So they needed to, to win a different way. Well, they did. <laughs> they just turned the passing, the, the, the lever over from run-dominant offense to pass-dominant offense. And when you can do that to Drew Brees in New Orleans when they're playing well as they were in December, heck, that tells me that you know this team, which has only lost three games, they lost to Atlanta after that three-game stretch, which you know their focus might not have been good. They lost to Seattle in overtime, and they lost as I said, to the best team in the NFL this year, the Ravens, at the end of the game. So you look at their record, they've been really hard to beat. I, I, two weeks rest, I, can, I, I give the, a little edge to San Francisco in a game that will end up in with both teams in the 30s. I, think. I love it. John, thanks as always for your insight. appreciate it. Make sure you say hi to JLo for us and uh, enjoy the game. <laughs> I'll personally send you regards. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, John. Take care. All right. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story, idea, or a community event to share, head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.